Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I just had Adam Healy on the show today. Adam was the former chief security officer at BACT that's owned by ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, and also now he's a chief security officer at BlockFi. What was really cool was that Adam worked for the government for a very long time in super secret positions that he was alluding to, but didn't wasn't allowed to say specifically intelligence community related things. So we really got into what the intelligence community thinks of Bitcoin and crypto, how to protect yourself. We talked about how we can attract government employees to actually come into crypto. Uh, what is security hygiene and how and what does that look like? Uh, and healthy skepticism. Is it good or is it not good? I feel like I'm like trying to sell people. Anyway, I'm Charlie Trump. You guys know who I am. You're going to love the show. I'll talk to you right in a minute. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Coin Gaming. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. Untold Stories would not be here without the amazing media company Blockworks Group. Last year, we set out to build this show from the ground up together. They're a media company with over 20 podcasts. And for access to all their premier webinars and other amazing shows that they produce in their network, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. And I promise you will not be disappointed. You just got back from multiple weeks of multiple days of being out in the forest and out in, in nature and shooting guns and working with different law enforcement. Um, yeah, something like that. So uh, a guy I know runs a, um, a tactical training academy and uh, trains lots of folks, civilians that want to learn more about personal defense, police officers, SWAT teams, um, special forces operators and kind of everything in between. And, uh, just spent four days out there, um, doing a bunch of shooting and moving and communicating as we like to say, it was, uh, quite a blast. No pun intended. That sounds amazing. That's actually awesome. No, that sounds amazing though. And I'm, I'm a little jealous because, um, I haven't been able to go shooting in many years. And, uh, it's one of the things that eventually I'll be able to do again, but I actually found out that I'm allowed to own, I'm allowed to own a gun apparently that's in Florida, that's considered an antique gun, which is any gun made before 1918 and, or a replica thereof. So that means like, I can get like a, like a revolver. That's a replica of like an eight, you know, 1800 revolver or whatever, like a Remington or something. And it's could only be cap and ball loaded. Now I don't even know what that means, but apparently if someone breaks into my house and I have a musket, I got to sit with a little pouch and a fucking stick and loading it up and shit. Cause that's yeah, what the government I mean. allows me to do. Probably not ideal, but you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of good firearms from back then that could probably be uh, very effective. A blunderbuss would probably be my like option if I were you, but you, you know what, you know what they say, uh, whoever they is, they say, um, you know, God created man, but Sam Colt made them equal. Oh, I love that. That's actually a great, that's a great statement. And it's kind of cool that we're talking about physical security because your career is in digital security. Everything you do is, um, and we can now announce it, you know, this, this show will come out after the fact. So you, congratulations, you, you're the chief security officer at BlockFi, actually one of my favorite companies. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, um, it, it's great to be here, you know, left, um, left back kind of early March and been searching around for kind of what my, uh, what my next move is. And, and after talking to Zach a lot, um, who's, who's great, by the way, if you, for those yeah, of I'll you text Zach now Zach, and tell him he doesn't need to be on the show anymore. I'll just t- <laughs> t- I'll tell him Adam's taking care of it. No, I'm just joking. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, you know, had a lot of conversations with Zach and Flory and kind of the broader team, and it, a lot of things made sense. And um, starting there, uh, just you know, on Monday. Oh wow, where did you? Where did you? You've been working in informational security for a very long time. Uh, you started your career. You're uh, you're a Marine, and so thank you for that. And um, and then you worked did a lot of informational security for the government and more of curiosity. I'd like to hear some cool stories about that. <laughs> um, but before you, you do that, can, do you remember like when you, I know it's a stupid question, like when you first heard about Bitcoin, but I guess because you, you were in a very unique position. So I'm kind of curious to hear like, what were your first takes about it? Because you were kind of like, uh, working in, in digital security already. So maybe you're a little bit jaded at first about a, a cryptocurrency, you know? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's it's a story I haven't told to many people, um, and, and I don't think I'm crossing any lines uh, if I do tell it. But you know, maybe like I'll get a phone call from from the FBI or something if I do. I, you know, joking, of course. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've been you know probably back to to 2006, 2007. Um, got out of the Marine Corps, was doing uh, was working for a defense company, a private company that does defense contracting work outside DC, and um, re- re- just kind of realized that no one was really taking what I considered this existential threat very seriously and uh, really started focusing my career around kind of that 06, 07, 08 timeframe on security. Um, fast forward a few years and I'm working in a, you know, we'll, we'll say at this point I've transitioned from being a contractor to, you know, what they consider a GS federal employee, you know, civil servant. Um, yeah. What's his and- name was explaining to me the difference. Um, I had a I had someone on the show and he was explaining to the difference of when you oh Brian Hoffman who used to work at at Booz, Booz Allen uh, now yeah. he runs Open Bazaar yeah. he was explaining to the difference of like how federal employees actually work it's interesting yeah yeah so um so I had just actually come back from Afghanistan and, and we'll probably get into some of those stories but I've just spent um, about ten months overseas about eight of those months in Afghanistan um, and, and that kind of rounded out my you know about three years in the Middle East uh, throughout my government career. And I uh, was back in D.C., was at some, you know, we'll just say, undisclosed government building, you know, 20, 30 minutes outside D.C., working sure. in um, you know, what's considered a skiff, which I'm not sure if you've heard that term. but I've never heard uh, of that term before. Okay. So uh, sensitive compartmented information facility. It's essentially where um, specialized, specially designed facilities, and there's actually a lot of uh, intersecting points to where how a skiff is designed and how you want to design facilities to manage cold storage. So I was working in one of those, running a a fairly large um, technology team for a a joint government agency initiative. And just randomly, um, I get a slide deck, somebody emails me. And it was a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies and this thing, Bitcoin and uh, Tor, which we we obviously knew a lot about Tor uh, within the government. And and it was really funny because it piqued my interest in the sense of, once you've seen behind the curtain, uh, you get very, I would say, cautious about what big government can do. Um, you know, I know a lot of friends, yeah. a lot of friends, and a lot of folks that that come from similar backgrounds: military, intelligence, um, special operations, and those are the first folks that generally go out and buy the hundred-acre farm. Um, yes, uh, yeah. So, um, so I get the slide deck, and, and it wasn't so much of what we talk a lot about now. How do we add utility? How do we monetize? How do we make this more generally acceptable? The theme of the deck was more: How do we break this? Hmm. And it, it, and of course that didn't you know that didn't really go anywhere. And you know we can talk a lot about various conspiracy theories, um, none of which I really subscribe to. But um, 
that was about 2012 timeframe and uh, 2011, 2012, and kind of passively was interested in it and carried that through till about, you know, fast forward a handful of years, about 2017, 2016, when, when things were really starting to ramp up. Um, and, you know, I, I just kind of reinvigorated my interest. You, you mentioned something earlier. Uh, you mentioned 20, 2007, 2008, the crisis. But um, I don't know if this was like a Freudian slip, but what's interesting is that you focused on the, the digital crisis when the rest of the world is focusing on the financial crisis. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so I, I was in a very privileged position at that point, right? I was working for, um, with, I was in the government orbit. And, you know, if you look at um, places that are immune from certain types of crises, uh, Washington, D.C. and the surrounding government, military, industrial complex was fairly immune from the recession. Florida, right? like, I too. Didn't, yeah, exactly. Like I didn't worry about my job. I was getting a paycheck. Everyone I knew was in the same boat. Yeah, our houses dropped in value. Oh, so, I see you where know, you're going with this. But, but we had no concern ab- about those things. So, um, you know, government checks generally don't bounce, which is a, a good thing. Hopefully, still true today, maybe. Yeah. Um, so... Um, so yeah, I, I was really starting to see, we were actually, um, deploying some new infrastructure for a particular agency and it, the kind of mandate was just get it up and running, deploy it to the network. And I, I'm sitting there taking a step back and this was fairly new technology at the time. And that was really a moment of inflection for me. I said, no one's thinking about security. No one's thinking about how we, um, we harden these devices and the, and the initiatives that we do have within the government for security are very antiquated and very bureaucratic. Um, and that was really kind of where I hard pivoted from, you know, systems engineering more or less into security engineering. You, you mentioned tour as well. Uh, what, what's the, what's like, what was the, so kind of like in the circles that I grew up in, we always knew that tour was created by the Navy and so we always like, it was like a tongue in cheek that tour is now being used for everything. Um, what was like from the inside? Was that, was that something that was cool? Did you guys know um, that that was the attitude is like, here's something that the government created that now is used to basically have this privacy and anonymity in a lot of respects. Yeah. I, I think there are a lot of people and I think it would shock the general public um, to really um, have discussions with people that were kind of in that world. And when I say that world, I mean, kind of the military defense intelligence world. Yeah. Those that take things like privacy incredibly seriously. Those that really have what I would consider more libertarian skewed views on privacy and civil liberties. So you're telling me that people that are going back to the farm analogy, this is, this is, we're not even 10 minutes into the show yet. <laughs> and we're getting into the rabbit hole. You're telling me that people like the ones who were the defense contractors who worked for the government all these years basically are all the farmers around the D.C. area. Like all the farms in Virginia are owned by probably like former government employees because they see I'm exaggerating a little bit here. But then you said that these guys are more privacy conscious and like I get it. It's like almost a Spider-Man quote with great power comes great responsibility. So now they realize that responsibility. Is there like a burnout? Is there a burnout with when? You know, you're working in the government and there's like data and there's like, it's such a balance that you have to maintain, right? Is that like, because one, you're a human and the other side, you understand the need to have, you know, efficient data when you work for the government, because it does at the end of the day, you know, you have, you have things like, um, you have real crime, you have real terrorism, you have, um, you know, child pornography and things like that. So there is a real use for some of these things, but how do you like maintain that balance? 
Yeah, I mean, so, so let's unpack that a little bit. So I, I would first say um, the, the farms around Virginia, probably not mostly government folks. Um, I'm actually speaking to you from a, a very nice farmhouse in, just outside Charlottesville. Oh, I'm jealous. Um, that, uh, that I'm staying in um, for the next little bit as I uh, make my way back to the, um, to, to the East Coast. Um, but so I wouldn't say maybe not those farms, but I know a lot of folks that have you know, really um, been in that world. Because you also have to keep in mind, whether you're a contractor, the, um, a government employee, and certainly not in the military, none of those jobs pay very well. So you know, you're not, you're not um, buying some of those beautiful farmhouses, you know, but you are buying... And I, and I know a lot of people that are in that boat where they're, they want a little bit of privacy. They want a little bit of distance. They want to get their families um, outside of the major metro areas. And, and I think that, um, that, that I continues. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in a couple different cities and um, I, I'm seriously evaluating kind of like whether it's, um, you know, COVID, which, you know, have, we can talk about that, protests, always great to see people protesting looters never good to see looting um you know de- depending upon kind of how um, how you do that calculus i'm seriously kind of starting to evaluate you know where are the places that i want to spend more of my time geographically especially as remote work is becoming more popular but kind of back to the question you know i, I think um there there is certainly a dichotomy um there is certainly a um you know at one point my career i'm sitting there looking at um, you know, incredibly classified intelligence on cyber threat activity around the world that is being uh, that that is being obtained with various sources and methods. But the the other side of that is I take my personal privacy very seriously, and I advocate for citizens to do the same. If you if you didn't if you didn't work in that role, if you didn't have that job, if your life went a different way, would you be as privacy conscious? Do you think? You know, I don't know. I, I think it's really easy to like fall into the mainstream um, kind of group think of, well, they're listening to everything. So why would I care? I'm not doing anything wrong. I, I think it's really easy to kind of just as humans kind of fall into that group think. So, so it's hard to say, you know, I, I grew up of, of all places, um, you know, and we met but the first fair. time in Miami. It's kind of a fair statement to make because I say that too, like I'm guilty of that. And as much as a privacy, con- you know, conscious person I am, a narco capitalist, and whatever label you want to put on me, I almost assume because my background, and I'm like, I always joke with my wife, I'm like, there. Let's just assume whoever they is is listening all the time about everything we say, and it's like, it's we laugh, ha ha ha, but like, is it that wrong? Matt, we have Alexa in all the rooms, you know, Google Homes. We all, you know, we have toaster oven can mine for Bitcoin. Actually, it didn't actually pan through. That was, I was so excited. When I went into jail, I was waiting for 21 to launch their Bitcoin toaster. And when I got out, that was the first thing I asked and it never actually <laughs> appeared. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it is a fair question. You know, we're all products of our experiences and it's hard to say kind of where you'd land on the privacy spectrum. Ultimately, I look at it much like I look at software. Um, and yeah. software risk is, is bad things happen to good people, um, all the time, every day, uh, whether you know, here in the U S and, and, and especially abroad. And, you know, I've, I've been to, it's funny. I saw a list the other day and it was like 10 most dangerous countries. And I was like, I think I've been to three of them and one that was like in the top 20. Oh my God. Um, and, um, so, so yeah, bad things happen, but you know, if, if there's a, just a standard amount of risk, um, and, and then, you know, you, you, you are involved in certain industries, cryptocurrencies, you're a, you're a public persona, you, you do podcasts, whatever it is. Each one of those things, I, my view is 
increments your risk up slightly. And then you kind of have to look more broadly about kind of what are the threats given your risk? What are the threats that yeah. might come after you? Oh, that's an interesting point. You you mentioned, um, and I want to get back to that, but you, you mentioned custody. Actually, I'll talk about custody after. How does someone know what risk level they're at? Now you've piqued my interest. Is <laughs> yeah, there a scoring I mean, system? There isn't, but maybe we should create one. Maybe that's, that's, uh, that's the next meeting in Miami. Well, um, like, you know, the running joke is if you call your grandma and you start saying bomb, 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 you know, like that, like, is there a trigger word somewhere that's going to, you know, you ever, what movie was that? The, the Good Wife, the TV show, they kind of show how <clears throat> they're listening and there's this like hop, multiple hops and there's just someone in an office in a cubicle somewhere. Movies and TV exaggerate things. Um, always, of course. But um, I think at the end of the day, what has come out of at least Bitcoin and crypto over the past 10 years is that not just financial literacy, but also like, uh, what do we call it? Privacy literacy or uh, right yeah. freedom literacy? I, or I, I call it, you know, a, a term which is just coincidental given where we are with the kind of a global pandemic. I, I call it security hygiene. And something mm. I, I, I'm often quoted as saying. I'm writing that um, down. Because uh, security hygiene is broad, right? It could be your cyber presence, your privacy. Um, you know, when you get out of a car at a grocery store at 10 p.m. to go run and get, um, you know, frozen pizzas or diapers or whatever it is you're getting. Um, but but I, I look at it like you, you can take, and what I'm often quoted as saying is, you can take all the antibiotics in the world you want. But if you don't wash your hands, you're still going to get sick. That's actually perfect. So it, it's what's your hygiene and kind of what's that security hygiene. I think that's just a, a good way of like very simply uh, boil it down. I've never been more security hygienic than I am now, but I'm pretty confident. Like, here we go. I got this Bitcoin ring. I think it's the only one because my dad is a jeweler. So he made it for me back in like 2012 or whatever. I just wanted one Bitcoin ring. Here we go, everyone, all my listeners, private key. There you go. There's a Bitcoin <laughs> on there. Now that, no one, if whoever screenshotted this private key, this is a bearer instrument now. Like if I give this ring to someone, that's $10,000 or whatever it is. But the thing is with this private key, it's double encrypted with BIP38. And I don't even remember the password, so please don't come after me. Um, people used to call me four finger Charlie, but let's talk about custody for, for a second, because you, uh, you said something cool too. Um, um, you were building out these like government, what was the word you called them? I didn't write it down. A skiff, S C I F. Okay. So you're building out these government skiffs and then you kind of modeled, uh, backed custody or, you know, you modeled custody kind of after this. Well, so, so I, I think something that the, the custody component of, of, of crypto certainly lacks and, and potentially more broadly, or maybe certainly more broadly, the larger industry lacks is how do we effectively instrument security? And, you know, a lot of firms and they're not wrong. And I'm friends with most of their CISOs and in some cases, most of their CEOs uh, is, you know, they go off and they get SOC 2 certifications. They go and they do an ISO certification. You know, they do yep. CCSS audits. They do all these things, all great, all net positive, all allows uh, the industry to show a certain level of maturity. But, but my view is what one of the things that we lack is what is the ISO 27,000 or SOC audit equivalent that is unique to custody? That doesn't exist. It, it just simply doesn't exist. So there's no, there's no standard for custody. Well, there's no way to, to, in a standardized way, instrument 
and, and watch metrics trend over time, a security, call it a security hygiene score. Um, and I think a lot of that just gets back to, it, it's a very nascent industry. Um, still to this day, you know, I was, I was on stage um, not too many months ago with Perry Ann um, and, and she had asked a question. I said, yeah, I think we're still like in year zero, maybe year one um, across the industry and, and certainly more in the security context as well. How are people custodializing crypto? I mean, like you don't have to give specifics, but most people who listen to the show don't really understand like, what that looks like. What, a family office comes and says, hey, we'd like to allocate a million dollars, you know, of our of our assets into Bitcoin. But then you have that's a family office. So there may be a little more risk, you know, but then you have like a pension fund, a teachers union pension fund. They need like you talk about security standards. Those guys need the, like the best security level. Like it's a teacher's union. They teach our kids. Yeah. We want so, the teachers to be taken care of. Yeah. By the way, we I don't know why we don't take care of our teachers in this country. That's the one thing I know. I still don't I, I understand. Saw, I saw something on Twitter paid. the other day and it was like day four of homeschooling. And now every parent thinks teachers should make a million a year. They should. They should. They, they should. But also like we can talk about education, but I think education should be a little bit more decentralized. But I, it's not bad compared to other other countries. I, I was reading some other countries curriculums and even some like Western countries, you'd be so surprised about like what they throw in there to teach their kids. Um, uh, no, I forgot what I was talking about. I forgot my train of thought. We, it happens. Uh, custody. Yeah. yeah. So they, everyone knows what custody, like a Trezor or, you know, my phone, a BitPay, you know, wallet or whatever. Um, but how are these like larger institutions, like the teachers union, how are they custodializing? What is physically bad? What, how do you physically, t- do they show up like at a warehouse with like a thumb drive? And then there's like a, a hand holding, shaking hand process. Like, what is that entail? Yeah. I mean, so I'll caveat this and say every institution's different. Um, and, and my thoughts on this, and I certainly have helped a lot of friends move assets around, um, that, that are more on the considered the retail or maybe high net worth side. But when you start to get into family offices or any type of institution, it's you have to have much more sophistication around how you do it. Um, and, and a lot of it really does come down to a few different ways that that custody can be provided. And, and if you know if you're a pension fund and you're looking for exposure to to um, crypto or Bitcoin, what have you, um, your best bet is to leverage the the infrastructure, the plumbing that's already been put in place over the last number of years. You know, there are, you know, we, we, everyone will argue about this, but in my mind, it's pretty cut and dry. There are kind of top tier brands for custody, leverage one of them, um, to diversify across two or three of them, but leverage kind of that ecosystem. And I'm sure somebody will say, no, not your keys, not your crypto. And I get that. I personally understand that. But when you're talking about institutions, heavily regulated institutions that have, um, that, that have stakeholders that are potentially thousands or tens yeah, of thousands they're, they're of not. teachers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I, I think the, the industry has, has been shifting um, and there's a constant innovation, but I, I think largely it's still bucketed as hot or cold, um, HSMs or not, uh, some version of Shamir or not. Um, and then kind of the newest piece and, and something that I, I'm very passionate about and very interested in seeing how it matures is MPC. And that's kind of the new hotness. Uh, what's MPC? Multi-party computation. What is so those are kind of the, like the fireblocks of the world. Well, so um, kind of. So so MPC effectively uh, allows you to use um, math, math, something called zero knowledge proofs, to digitally sign. And it sounds like black magic, but I, I trust you. I trust me, it's not. Mm. Um, 
this, the, 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 um, the math kind of that backs this has been around since the seventies. And then there's a number of very top tier companies, Fireblocks being one, um, that are doing great work on this. Um, and it effectively allows you to through, um, through, through rounds of cryptographic operations, uh, digitally signs, you know, sign a transaction without ever, um, fully manifesting, re- fully rendering the private key in any single insecure location. So if, even if you think of Shamir, um, no, no, I'm, I'm thinking it through, it's actually brilliant, but how does it work? In re- Cause, um, the old OTC deals back in like 2011, the way they would be done was actually what, what, what someone would do was he would actually not send a transaction, but they would send a pre-signed text. So what would happen is I'd get, like if you did an OTC deal back in the day and you bought Bitcoin from someone who was like an early miner, they wouldn't actually just send the transaction to you. They would take the private key. They would, they would do all everything for the transaction except for broadcasting the transaction. And they would send you the raw pre-transaction uh, data that you can then go and broadcast it on your own. Yeah. Um, interesting. Kind of so, pointless. So, so, so yeah. MPC very quickly gets around, get, gets to some PhD level math that I'm certainly not qualified to like speak at at a deep level. Um, but you know, you guys should have, uh, you should have, um, uh, Michael from Fireblocks on, he, he can, he can explain it with, with his view of the world, but, um, but, but effectively it, it, it the, the, the easiest way to explain it is if, if you have three parties, none of them want, to disclose how much they make, but you need to derive the average salary among those three. Um, You could do that using MPC-like technology or or a a, a mechanism that allows you to do that by introducing certain certain randomness um, by each party. So um, that's where a lot of, I think, investments happening right now um, across some of the larger custodians. But again, it's, um, it's one of those things that uh, is still pretty new, and there's still some hesitation uh, about fully adopting it. And, and I really think, you know, still to this day, and, I, and I'm, I'm friends with a lot of the MPC organizations out there, Curve, Fireblocks, um, Unbound, and others. Uh, and, and what it really does get down to, though, for my view, is nothing beats um, sharded keys in a cold storage vault with a, a lot of technical and physical security wrapped around it for, you know, the vast majority of assets under custody. It's, it's almost a mixture of both. And it's a, it is a mixture of both. Are they working on custody? There's no question that crypto and gaming have gone hand in hand since the early days of Bitcoin when it first launched. And in fact, that's what really drove mass adoption. Companies like BitCasino, which is the first ever licensed Bitcoin casino, and brands like Sportsbet.io. I mean, it's the reason people are using crypto and Bitcoin today. Fun, fast, and fair. When you're using uh, blockchain-based gaming, make sure you require that they are fair because there's no reason that they shouldn't be transparent because everything can be seen on the blockchain. Coin gaming is so cool. It's an ecosystem of brands, products, and people that are serious not just about shaking up the gaming industry, but also the crypto industry. These guys have been around since the early days of Bitcoin. The CEO of Coin Gaming used to actually mine for Bitcoin and, and use the Bitcoin miner to heat his home in Estonia. I mean, those go down to like negative 25 degrees. So if you're, if you're cool about driving crypto awareness together, if you got a question or you just want to connect with your team of like dreamers and doers, the whole community, make sure you check them out coingaming.io play some of their games sportsbet.io or bitcasino fun fast and fair
I'm Charlie Sharma. I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. Like broadly across all blockchains or is this just Bitcoin? Because I almost wonder like um, because of Bitcoin security level and length of time it's been around and it's uh, immutability and the fact that it's, I guess, unlike some of the other coins and tokens that can be easily like controlled by some other like third parties or whatever, um, that people are okay with building out these like crazy custodial solutions on Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, so, so MPC is, is effectively um, coin agnostic. Uh, so it can be leveraged against uh, you know, various, um, various different assets. Um, so, so, so certainly that applies there. And I think also something like Shamir, right? Another common technology that's found in custody solutions um, is kind of an M of N sharding of keys, Shamir. Uh, that, uh, that that can be used across any uh, any key material, regardless of the uh, the crypto asset. I say any somebody will jump on and comment. Oh, like he's not one hundred percent correct, but you know, Always. generally any, yeah, generally any. It's so interesting how that how that works out. So now you so now you um, took your role. I know we we're jumping around on the timeline here, and I was, I was trying to follow. So. Um, no, no, it's awesome. So when did you like jump in full time? And this is a question, act, this is a question that I've only been able to ask like one other person or two other people because I've had uh, two other guests who uh, were working at the government, working for the government in various roles and then jump right into like Bitcoin or crypto or whatever. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> That's the yeah, question. It's, re- it's really funny. I have like it's a crazy a, jump. Okay. Well, so I leave government, right? And um I, I go to work at a firm um, it, out of their New York office, but a firm based in Palo Alto, out in the Valley. So I'm just under three years there. Um, and um, a lot of data analytics, a lot of big data, a, a lot of um, insight generation for large Fortune 500s. Um, they also had government contracts. but so, so I did that. So I was kind of legging into the private sector overall, not just crypto. Um, so I so spent about spent just under three years there. Um, and decided that I'm going to leave there. And uh, oddly enough, right, I go from government to kind of this private sector big data firm, uh, yeah. and, and then um, go into healthcare. Kind of very randomly end up in healthcare, uh, and uh, not a great place to be. Like healthcare is not an ideal place to work if you're in technology. Uh, there's just a lot of problems to be solved and not a lot of budget to do it, which which ultimately means kind of semi mediocre solutions across the board. Yeah. Um, and then uh, an opportunity presented itself, and kind of really to answer your question, early 2018, January timeframe, uh, I, I get a call from uh, from a headhunter that uh, representing a firm in New York. That firm was DACC, ultimately acquired by Back. And um, I, initially, I thought it was a scam, right? Like, yeah. I get this random <laughs> call from this headhunter, and they're like, "Hey, like, there's this company. I can't really tell you too much about it." But they're looking for somebody with government experience. It was really funny. And like the first yeah. call I had with the headhunter, I was like, yeah, this dude is, is completely trying to scam somebody. Come to find out, not a scam. Um, actually, some really great dudes. Um, and uh, joined that company. I think we were there. We kind of did that for probably 15 months or so, year and a half or so, something around there, um, when back swooped in and acquired us. And then what happened? Yeah. And then um, you know, spent the last year at Bact. Uh, so. Um, you know, Bax a really interesting company. They're doing a lot of things. Uh, you know, there's clearly been they are that, the institution for the institutions. Like that's you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, you could say that. And I think that's a lot of the 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 
the kind of general theme of what people think. You know, mm. majority owned by Intercontinental Exchange. I'm sure everyone knows ICE um, that mm-hmm. listens to your podcast. But for those of you that don't, um, ICE also owns the New York Stock Exchange uh, and you know a dozen other things around the world, exchanges, clearinghouses, etc. Um, you know, Fortune 500, you know, 50 plus billion dollar company. Um, that's the company that majority owns backed. So. Um, I found, uh, and, and ICE definitely has a branding issue given some of the DHS ICE. Uh, mm. Oh, things. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it yeah, does. So, so when I say ICE, I mean Intercontinental Exchange. That uh, ICE, for the, not for, yeah, not the putting kids in cages ICE. Um, hey, so you, um, no, 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 continue. Yeah, so uh, so spent a year at Backed. Um, you know, I, I think we were about 50, 60 employees when I got there. Uh, 11 of whom were DACC pullovers from the acquisition. And then a year later, I left. And I, I think the headcount at back, but after a couple other acquisitions is north of 400. So a uh, pretty, pretty wild ride for about a year. So like you're describing all these attributes to like the government employee and, um, and I'm writing them down and I'm saying to myself, you know, the government employee is actually perfectly conditioned to work in our industry because you're talking about someone who understands what it's like to be part of a whole, right? Like doing something, not just for money, but for the better of the good. At least that's what I think a lot of people in government think about, you know, why they join government or whatever. You're like not saying yes. So I can't tell if you agree with me or not. Yeah. I, I would say, I would say yes. Okay. There are. Yeah. But whatever. There, so there's yeah, also really. like long-term, like understand that you can work for something like long-term. Cause a lot of millennials nowadays, like my age, people are like, uh, or you, I'm not even millennial and it's like younger than me or like, yeah, they want to work for companies like one month at a time. So like the long-term aspect, because when you're in crypto, it's a long-term game here. Um, and then people who work for low pay with a lot of risk. So uh, how do we, attra- so do you agree with that? And then two, how do we attract more government people to work in our industry? So I would say generally agree with all of those things. Um, and, and I would say not just government employees and certainly there is an archetype there. Um, but I would say government employees that are in one or better yet, both of uh, technology and intelligence. I think there are some mm-hmm. amazing skill set crossovers for from the intelligence community in crypto. And, and I guess to answer your question, sorry, um, the, I guess to answer your question, how do we attract them? You, you know, I think it's telling the story and putting out good content. It's this is why we're doing this. This is why we think um, the, the future of blockchain and Bitcoin and, and digital assets more We're talking about is, like is important. narratives and, 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 you know, that's important to this mission. Um, yeah. The mission, you know, the mission, the vision, the, the story, the story arc, the narrative, although the word narrative is starting to get like a negative term. And I don't, you know, nowadays, but because um, <laughs> people are assuming that narratives can be manipulated, which they can't, but the, the narrative or the, the story arc or the, um, the vision, not the vision. I shouldn't say that because that implies leadership. The the like overarching like story of of everyone involved in in Bitcoin early on, and then eventually crypto. It used to be like a lot more like it used to be. You know, early on, Bitcoin was like very anti government. Like when I got involved, this wasn't this was a like end the Fed anti government thing. But eventually, not eventually, but over the first year or two, it was understood that not end the Fed rather transcend, you know, and that's, you know, build out better technology, better solutions, better ideas. And under like the voluntarist uh, understanding of like, don't force someone rather create good competition. Then people will look and say, Hey, 
there's one financial system that sucks, but Bitcoin or crypto is a better one. I'm going to voluntarily switch myself over to use that one. That message has shifted. When you first heard about Bitcoin, um, did you, do you feel that that was the message back then and that has changed? And has it changed enough to attract government employees or or you know to enter industry or just like like the the how we are viewed are we still viewed from your former colleagues or people that your friends are we viewed in this you know anarchist light still um i I don't think i'd say the anarchist light i think there's a healthy dose of skepticism something else great skill set in crypto great skill set in the intelligence community is a good dose of healthy skepticism about everything i love Um, that i'm gonna write that down too and and that's a, a great skill overlap. If you can thoughtfully question everything, you'll do better in life, my view. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say that. I've seen resumes from FBI agents, DEA agents. Uh, oddly, I, I saw a resume not too long ago for a DEA agent that um, on his resume was, uh, was, was somehow implying in general terms uh, involvement in, uh, in, in Silk Road. And I was like, oh, boy. Um, oh, I have a crazy story about that. Uh, well, actually, it's not my story, but if you listen to if if you guys listen to a previous podcast of mine, and I'm actually forgetting his name, but he was the I can't believe I'm forgetting his name right now. But he was the um, the former. Um, hang on, I'm going to pull it up. It was a great, great, great show. He was the he was a guy who actually ran gold, silver, Bitcoin, which was a way for you to like. Um, go from like Bitcoin into crypto back and forth, back and forth. And he, why am I can't find it? Uh, he got an email, Justin O'Connell. That's the episode. Great episode. He got an email from a DEA agent and on his resume said, Hey, I'm a DEA agent. I just took down Silk Road and I want to be your chief compliance officer. And the guy, and he, so Justin hired him. And then the guy ended up using the website to launder the money he stole from Silk Road. This is Karl Mark Force, the guy. Yeah, that was him. So you talk about resumes on DEA. It's kind of crazy. That's how it all went down. Uh, you know, things never surprise me. The, the the stuff people try and get away. With. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I mean, to, you know, to, to kind of double top the question that uh, that you asked. Yeah, I, I don't think it's full anarchist. I, I think there's some skepticism, but I do think as more serious institutions get involved it helps normalize the concept um, of digital assets of, of Bitcoin. And, and that can only help the pool, the, the, the recruiting side of things can only help uh, expand the pool of people that want to move into the industry. I completely agree. And I, can, I really like what you said about like security hygiene and, and healthy skepticism. And that's so important for, for, for our industry and Bitcoin and, and everything else. Um, on that note, like of, of like skepticism, what are, in your view, let's talk about Bitcoin specifically for a second. In your view, like what are Bitcoin's, you, you, your only strength is as strong as your weakest link. Is that like, mm-hmm. that's the quote, right? What's Bitcoin's weakest link from a security perspective? I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think from a security specific perspective, I, I think it, it's, it's, there's still reliance and I, I've, seen articles and read stories of stuff in space and also it's actually funny and an anecdotal aside of uh, I, at one point i was spending a lot of time thinking about how to bank uh legal cannabis and i've 
I know way too much about how, how that effectively doesn't work. Um, oh, we have um, to talk about that because I, I just had a <laughs> cannabis doctor, neurologist on my show just the other day. But, um, but you know, some, there was some uh, investor out in Silicon Valley that was like trying to like explain to me how they wanted to put a bank in space because it was like non, it wasn't subject to any jurisdictions. But now, so, the so best solution I, I, is CanPay, I found. They, uh, they solved the yeah. banking issue. Well, in Florida, at least. so we, yeah, we, there, there's some thought hyper, another really good product. Um, they're based out in Arizona, but yeah, that, that we should talk about that. But, um, the, the, the weakness piece of Bitcoin, you know, I, I think is there's still a reliance as long as you're on the planet earth on, on, on things that the government can control. Those things are electricity, uh, lots of electricity. Uh, and those things are, uh, transport. So network infrastructure, ISP, um, something that we called in the, um, and I don't even know if they still use this term, but you know, at one point we called it dark fiber, basically bulk transport layer fiber connectivity, um, you know, between continents across continents. So, so these um, are the cables that are, go from like one continent to another, those big fiber optic cables, those, or, or simply the, the land-based infrastructure that allows you to go from New York to San Francisco. Um, but that's the choke point. There's like one building that literally, like that's the crazy thing that people don't realize about the internet is that there's like, yeah, we're on a decentralized internet, but when you go, when you have data that goes from one country to another, especially smaller countries, they're very, there's like a physical location where that data is going through. And if that physical location, that's how they did in Egypt, you know, they shut yeah. off the whole internet. So that's, you're fucking scaring me right now because you have a good point. Bitcoin is very much reliable on global government utilities. You're right, hundred percent, and that's yeah. that's something we. Ha How do you solve that? And, and, and well, let's talk about that. But the, and I would say the, the the let's add on to that layer that to that that fear level is both of those internet and power are considered you know critical infrastructure, and and with that moniker of critical infrastructure comes with it a certain level of government ability to inspect and audit and mandate and order um, certain activities. So, you know, how do you insulate against that? Like, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, 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 I haven't found a solution that I think is scalable, secure, um, that, that solves all of those problems. I mean, just for me, I joked earlier and it wasn't even a joke. It's like, I'm actually deadly serious. Like, you know, looking to, I'm actually looking, you know, I've spent a lot of time since kind of the early part of March, um, st stayed with a, you know, stayed with a buddy who has got a nice cabin, you know, hot tub and kind of did a bunch of just like hanging out with kind of our quarantine crew. Um, and then I've, you know, been kind of a little bit running around the, the country doing different things. Um, and, but I'm, so I'm, I'm kind of in the market to like, Hey, I want to buy something myself. I, I want to buy a piece of land, maybe something with a house on it. I don't know. Um, but in that investigation, I start like nerding out. I'm like, okay, how am I going to get it off grid? What's the power consumption requirements? Um, solar, water, you know, whatever it ends up being. Um, and, and it's actually really hard to solve for call it a, a three bedroom cabin that I want to run a coffee maker and a TV and a couple of mm. computers. I'm, I don't even want to mine. Um, it, it's these are solved problems, but you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. So how do you how do you do that at scale for Bitcoin? I don't know. Going off the grid is very expensive uh, and it's still very niche. Like most people can't afford to do it. They have to rely on government utilities and it, there's really very difficult to change that. So there's like two schools of thought. I've, I had a, I had this conversation uh, 
with actually someone who's probably lives in your state right now. Jameson Lop, he lives near. You should go chew guns yeah. with him. He's like my favorite yeah, we person. Should. <laughs> no, literally, if you go, if you guys go, I'm coming. I'm driving up. Okay. I'll be in. I think I'm spending August in. Uh, I think I'm spending August near Asheville. I don't know if you're near there, but I'll be. I'll be around there in North Carolina. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe we should uh, we should set that up. We'll have to talk. We'll, we'll set that. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, no, that would be fun. But um, you know, so so reliance on that is is important. There's like two schools of thought when it comes to Bitcoin, and that is like, okay, so yes, we know it's a problem, but there's nothing that you're going to ever change. The government has controlled utilities forever, and it's always going to be the way. So let's basically figure out better ways to hide or encrypt the data. I think that the quote I read once. That when uh, there was a Bitcoin wallet that had launched, maybe it was a Nix wallet or something, I forget. Um, when they launched, it said, in order to hide the signal, you have to create noise. So that's like kind of the the understanding of like basically just create a ton of noise. And eventually the government would have to turn off the Internet to turn off Bitcoin. But as we're seeing, governments are actually turning off the Internet. So that's not really a good excuse anymore. So the other one is create new utility. How do you create new utilities? Mesh networks? Do you send, yeah. do you do like Blockstream satellite and put... Bitcoin in space. You know, I, ran across a, I ran across a company recently through a random string of events. This happens to me all the time. It's like, like random question will, somebody will email me, Hey, so-and-so said to hit you up about this. Um, they thought, they thought you might have, you know, 30 minutes of an opinion on it. So the very similar had a um, interesting discussion with a company called, I hope they don't mind me saying their name. Um, actually it's, it's free advertising, so I, I doubt they care, and they've got it all over their website. Um, but a company called GoTenant, G-O. Oh yeah, I know them super well. Yeah, so I had an interesting conversation with them, and and they're kind of in that mesh network, low, um, uh, you know, low bandwidth. Yeah, they're um, big in the boating community. I didn't know that. Okay. I mean, I'm in the boating community, and I have one. They're huge in the boating community. Everyone has one because. So I actually talked about this on a show, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. I don't know if you know this, but there is a. There is a mesh network in the world today, a huge one that no one knows about, and it's decentralized and it's uncontrolled and it's actually very inefficient, but it's the boater community. Theoretically speaking, if I had a message that I wanted to pass from here to Japan, there are enough boats with radio signals in between VHF, UHF for that, for the signals to bounce off from boat to boat, to boat, to boat, to boat, to to somewhere else, anywhere in the world. And I've practiced this. I've gotten messages... It's like ham radios, but but lower frequency. So ham radios are great because they go all, you know, but I'm talking about just like VHF, UHF, where you don't need a license. You can go buy, the, you know, from 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 the store. So my friends and I did this as, a, as for fun, as a test. And we set up at our houses, you know, a, a small handheld radio antenna every like five miles, their, their maximum thing. And we were able to continue the hop and get these messages down, hop, hop. So we had to repeat the me- The person would have to repeat it every, you know, it's, a, this, it's an inefficient mechanism. But you can build out these like systems, you know, these mesh networks and they exist. Yeah. The boating community. So, I, mean, I, I would say like if we flip this question on its head, though, right. And I would say if rather than saying, how do we prevent government from 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 impacting critical infrastructure to degrade, you know, the performance of the network or potentially like, you know, somehow disrupt um, Bitcoin. Maybe the other, maybe the, the other side of that question though is how do we incentivize them not to? How do we actually continue the journey, um, continue the normalization, continue adding utility to Bitcoin to where the government actually starts to adopt it and then they start to actually, and you know, big they, whoever that ends up being, um, they start to 
um, see it as something that they're actually incentivized not to impact. And I, I think that's actually a, a much more, um, yeah, a, it's a, a much, much more straightforward idea. path. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. There's a, and it's true because someone said, uh, what would happen if a government decides to buy up all the Bitcoins and kill it? And so the idea is that there's a financial incentive incentive to not do that. And so the only, but realistically, there is, going back to the question of like what's Bitcoin's weakest link, um, there is enough money today uh, for someone to cause uh, unnecessary a narrative havoc on Bitcoin. And that's sure. something that I fear. Um, and obviously now like Bitcoin is growing and crypto is growing, our industry is growing and that narrative is harder to like control and change and do. But that's one of the things that I look at. That's actually not a good answer because that's not a security thing. But, um, but yeah, that's, you know, here we are today, almost, almost 10 years into Bitcoin, over 10 years into Bitcoin's existence and crypto in general. It's kind of crazy. Um, so what are you going to yeah, do I mean, on think, think, about, think about all the pro, uh, all the progress that we've made just in the last three years, right? It's it's quite jarring when you sit back it and look is. at it. Um, yeah. So w- the question was, what, uh, what am I going to do at BlockFi? Yeah, we didn't. It's when this gets released, you'll be working. You'll you'll be at your desk. Well, actually, you'll probably be sitting in the same spot. But um, <laughs> <laughs> what are you excited about? What are you going to be working on? Is that, you have any like any uh, focuses that you really want to achieve in the first you know year? Oh yeah. So many things, um, you know, and like, let's just not ignore the elephant in the room. Um, cause I'm sure, uh, if this gets, if this comes out and we don't mention it, there will be somebody to complain about it. Um, but you know, recently BlockFi had a security incident. There was a SIM swap against an employee. Um, and you know, I, I think, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. No one wants to, you know, so it's, I, I look at it like, let's just get it out there. There's been press releases, there's been articles. Um, but, but here's kind of, here's my thought on it is no one wants to deal with that. You don't want to be the employee. You don't want to be the company. You don't want to, you, you, it's, it's no one wants to deal with a, with any type of cyber incident, any type of security incident. Um, you know, when I say security incident, just for, you know, for frame of reference, I, I mean, cyber, I mean, um, it could be something beyond cyber, but technical. Um, yeah. it, it could, and then also physical security, right. And not just, um, do, do we have all of the right badge readers in place, but think of things like, you know, God forbid something like active shooter, um, or something along those lines, right? Yeah. Got to, got to think like holistically here. So, um, I, I always say, and, um, somebody who I, who I've known for a long time and used to be the global CIO for a fortune 10 company, uh, you know, she would say it, it's, we will have security events. They, they will happen. Um, but the, the measure of an effective security program is how quickly you identify, contain, and remove the threat. And, and if you look at the postmortem that BlockFi in a super transparent way posted, um, one of the reasons I really like Zach is his level of transparency internally yeah. and externally is, um, is those three things, identify, contain, and eradicate happened very quickly. And, and I think that's a measure of maturity of, uh, of an organization. So, you know, my, my, my kind of, mission at, at BlockFi is really going to be to, to take stock of everything that they're doing on the security front, on the, the macro security front, um, and, and start to really refine what is all of the great work that's already been done, start to really refine um, and sharpen the pencil on all of that. Everything from um, what I would consider back office to yeah. corporate systems, things like email and identity, 
to uh, product, mobile applications, physical security, and really kind of just level up and make BlockFi, uh, you know, uh, a, a leader in the security conversation that's happening across the community. And I think you'll be able to do it because of everything you've done and talked about so far. And now um, you're right. Like you're only strong going back. You're only strong as your weakest link. And um, when when something happens, look, shit, I've been simjack three times, twice on my phone number and once on my wife's. They literally the hacker went to stole my wife's number and texted me from it saying, I'll give it back to you for 30 Bitcoin. Um, I've been simjack twice. One of them, the hacker actually hacked into my email, waited until I was on a flight, knew when I was going to be on a plane and simjacked me while I was on the plane. I know, crazy. Was only able, the first time was only able to get one Bitcoin. And that this was many years ago. And then the second time for my wife, nothing. And the third time, it just happened recently. I'm lucky because my really, really good friend is in the process, actually at the time was in the process, but launched his own cell phone carrier. So he launched a carrier against SIM swapping. And if anyone wants to be a tester, they can email me and they can be, they can come on. So he launched a company and I, I you know, I, I don't want to talk about it yet, but it's a hundred dollars a year. And you get to not only, you get to choose the network that you're on. So you get to choose Verizon, AT&T or Sprint. And it's impossible to port, meaning that once your number is on, is, is on this network, um, his network, it's impossible to port. It's, it's a VIP system and your number is literally secure. How do I know this? Dude, it was the coolest thing. So, so this is what happened when I got simjacked. It was like two o'clock in the morning and I woke up to use the restroom and I got a text from Verizon saying that my number was successfully ported. So that's like the, the text you don't want to get. Like, you know, I'm freaking yeah. out. I immediately take myself off of, air, of airplane mode and I see that I don't have service anymore. The LTE sign is gone. I'm freaking out. So I go on and I try to get in Verizon is closed, of course, whatever. So I'm in a bunch of chat rooms and I messaged and I said, um, I said, uh, I just got simjacked. Guys, like, don't answer any of my emails or anything like that. Friend was, he was up. He was awake. I don't know why he was awake. He messaged me. He goes, oh, Charlie, I just got my porting ability. I was like, what is that? He goes, I can port numbers now. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, watch. He literally in 30 minutes, not even 30, 10 minutes, called my wife from my phone number got my number back from the hacker, ported it from the hacker. So cool. <laughs> that's, that's good. Like offensive security being yeah. used as like a defensive uh, purpose. Yeah. I mean, th there are a lot of great um, products that are starting to come out uh, around how to prevent SIM swaps. Um, you know, my, my view of it is, and something I've done for a long time is get off of SMS. Yeah. Just get off of SMS. Get off of SMS based multi-factor. That, that is a, 101 level thing. Um, and if there's a, a service that you, you know, there are, sadly, there are still a couple services out there um, that, that do not support an authenticator app or YubiKey. Um, certainly, there's a lot that don't support YubiKey. And it's, I mean, it's upsetting even Twitter to me. just had it a few months ago, had the ability to do an authenticator. It was SMS for oh. a while. So yeah, you're right. And then didn't Jack get, uh, get SimPorted? Yeah, SimJack yeah. or something, or yeah. someone did. Yeah. So but, but I, my thing is like what I, what I've done like for years and years and years, and I've gotten more sophisticated at it, um, more recently, but for years is, cause this was always a concern of mine was to register a number. And of course there's cost with everything, but register a number that no one knows the carrier of it. No one knows the number. Like it's a number, not a number you give out to anyone 
And the only thing that number is used for are those handful of services that still require SMS multifactor. Yeah. So you, you'd have to one, idea. know the number, and two, you'd have to know which carrier, which isn't impossible to find out, it, it is on. And, and frankly, if you can get a carrier that is digital only, so think of like you know your online VoIP providers, um, basically a carrier that's not one of the main carry, uh, cell carriers, AT&T, Verizon, whatever, um, you, then you can set up separate multi-factor around that VoIP provider. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, you can do VoIP. Some some of them don't allow you to use at like two-factor SMS with voice over IP. So a good trick to that is if you sign up with like a, a Metro PCS or a Boost Mobile, not one of the main characters, like I think Metro PCS actually just uses Sprint. So your, it'll, your number will come up as Sprint. But if someone tries to call Sprint to port your number, Sprint will say, we, we're not actually, we don't have control over this number. So that's yeah. another little tidbit too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's but, a real um, risk. It is. It is a huge risk. But I think um, at the end my, of the day... My word of advice for anyone that's listening is if, if you're doing anything sensitive, clearly crypto, anything fintech, anything payments, anything... Um, PII even, if, if that app, that service does not support authenticator minimum or YubiKey, really question why you're using that service. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem, to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.